0: Well, good morning again, church. It's good to be with you here this morning. We do come and continue to worship as we come underneath the authority of God's word. That's why we're here. We want God to speak to us. We want to hear from him. And so uh, I'm going to pray and uh, pray, ask that you would pray with me as we just ask the Lord to meet us here in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning, the songs that we've sung. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us just such a wonderful gift of music that we might express to you through song together our love for you, but more importantly, your love for us in Christ, even as we sung about this morning. Lord, as we open your word together, we ask that you would come and speak. We know that your spirit has inspired this word to even be, and we have it. You've maintained it and given it to us. So we can read it. We can understand it because of your spirit. And so now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring it to bear on us, convict us, Lord, correct us, change us, equip us for what it is that you would have us be and do, which is to live our lives in Christ, to trust in him and to glorify him in all things. That's what we want to do this morning, Lord, that the name of Christ would be glorified here and in our hearts and as we leave here. So, Lord, I ask that you would do that. Thank you again for this morning, and we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Last week, we began this series uh, titled In Christ, and I talked about how We often uh, look or rather think about our Christian lives as something uh, in in relation to, you know, is Jesus in my life? Is Jesus in your life? Where is he at? Can I see him? That's important. But the Bible talks often about us being in Christ, that the most important thing seems to be that do we have a share in the life of, of Christ, And we've started off really looking at, do first, do we have a share in the death of Christ? Because we have no share in the life of Christ if we don't have a share in his death. Paul uses this little phrase, in Christ, 164 times in all of his letters. So it's obviously rather important in the New Testament, this understanding of being in Christ. And I have titled these first two, uh, In Christ You're Dead. And that sounds like a clever title. Uh, doesn't it? But uh, the the point is, last week we talked about being dead to the law, that in Christ we are dead to the law. We had to die to uh, the law as the means of our justification. It never was intended for that, but we can be tempted to think that obedience to the law merits us righteousness, but that uh, Paul made abundantly clear in Galatians 2 as we were there last week that obedience to the law does not merit us righteousness before God because we cannot keep the law. And as we try to keep the law, we simply find that we cannot and therefore we are crushed by it. It does not bring life. The law is holy, righteous and good, as Paul says, but it was never meant to bring life. The only thing that can bring us life, as we talked about last week, was, is faith and trust in Christ. And so we have to die to the law through faith and trust in Christ in order that we might live in him. But there's more to this dying. See, I talked last week as well about just believing in the fact that Jesus died is not enough. There has to be something where we can say, "Ah, uh, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, but... It, it, tied on to that and a part of that is believing along with Paul that we can say, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, that my, or rather Christ's death somehow has a connection to me through faith. And I was there in some way. It's hard for who can understand that. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around such an abstract concept. Nevertheless, it's what the Lord's word tells us, that in faith and trust in Christ, we can say, I have been crucified with Christ. And that's a necessity. That's a must. We our, our old self, as we'll find in our text today, must die. And today we're going to now continue in thinking about the death of Christ and our participation in it and what that earns for us. We'll find two things that it uh, earns for us, uh, our death to sin. And our death to death itself. And we'll find out how that makes any sense as we jump into our text this morning. Romans 6 is where we're at. And I'm going to jump in at verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. There's a man named William Perkins. He was born in 1558 in England. It was the same year that Elizabeth assumed the throne of England. And uh, she brought England back to being a Protestant nation after her uh, rather angry sister Mary uh, was not a Protestant Not much is known about William Perkins' family or his background, but some conclusions can be drawn about uh, his state in life. He enrolled in Cambridge at the age of 19, uh, and he was called a pensioner. Someone that was called a pensioner at that time who was enrolled in college basically means that his family paid his way through college. They had enough means to be able to pay His way through. He was not on the lower end where uh, it was paid for him, but he was not in the higher end where it was also paid for him. He was in the middle. His family had means enough to pay for it. So he's enrolled at Cambridge at the age of 19. He's a rather intelligent man. But upon his arrival at Cambridge, his life sounds like that of far too many 19 year old college students. One biographer said the wildfire of his youth began to break out. He was entirely void of any interest in spiritual matters and seemed wholly given to drunkenness and other vices. There's a story that lives on regarding Perkins' life at the time. It goes like this. As he was walking in the skirts of the town while he's a student there at Cambridge, he heard a woman say to her young child that was being rather out of control, she said, hold your tongue. Or I will give you to drunken Perkins over yonder. It was around this time he became convicted of his sins and was converted to faith in Christ. He poured himself into his studies and within seven years completed both his bachelor's and master's degrees. Was ordained to the ministry and was appointed as the pastor of the church right across the street from his college there at Cambridge. He was also a professor there at the college. Before he began, though, preaching in his church, one of the first places Perkins went to preach after his ordination was the local jail at Cambridge Castle. There's this wonderful story of Perkins walking with the man on his way to the gallows the day of his execution. And Perkins looked at him and he felt like the man looked half dead. Well, he was almost fully dead. He's on his way to the gallows. But Perkins began talking with him. If you've ever seen a movie or a show where uh, these sort of executions happen, uh, you you know, sort of the scene, the crowds all gathered around there. And Perkins seems to be at least close enough to where the prisoners walk up onto the gallows. And he is looking at the man and he begins to talk with the man as he walks up. And Perkins said to the man, what is the matter with you? (laughs) The guy's about to be hung. That's what's the matter with him. He says, what's the matter with you? Are you afraid of death? The prisoner confessed that he was less afraid of death and more afraid of what would follow. Perkins responded, come down again, man, and you will see what God's grace will do to strengthen you. The prisoner agreed and Perkins kneeled together with the man and prayed with him. Perkins offered, it says, such an effectual prayer in confessions of sins as made the poor prisoner burst out into abundance of tears. Convinced the prisoner was brought low enough, even to hell's gates, he said, Perkins showed him the freeness of the gospel. The prisoner's eyes were opened to see how the black lines, this is a wonderful quote. The prisoner's eyes were opened to see how the black lines of all his sins were crossed and canceled with the red lines of his crucified Savior's precious blood. So graciously applying it to his wounded conscience as made him break out into new showers of tears for joy of the inward consolation which he found. The prisoner climbed cheerfully up the ladder, testified to the crowd of salvation in Christ's blood, and bore his death with patience as if he actually saw himself delivered from the hell which he feared before, and heaven opened for the receiving of his soul to the great rejoicing of those that were gathered there. What a wonderful story. Perkins is someone who is pulled out of a life of sin, perhaps even from that story of the woman saying, I'll give you over to drunken Perkins if you don't behave. The shame of that, perhaps, the conviction of that, led him to profess faith in Christ. And it's owing only to the grace of God that such a man as Perkins, who was known for the way he lived prior, would radically become changed and furthermore a preacher of the amazing grace that saved him. And he was so quick to want to share it with everyone around him, even such a man as was headed towards his execution. Perkins understood what it meant to be dead to sin, And dead to death itself. He's telling the man, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death? And that is precisely what we see in our text today. This very heartbeat of the power of being dead to sin. And dead to death. How can we stand over the graveside of a believer and read Paul's words, O death, where is your sting? How can, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because some, I'm I'm assuming, that are standing around there are wondering, how can you say there's no sting? But the Christian understands death. Yeah, it's, it's dreadfully painful. It hurts to lose those that we love. But there's no sting in death for the Christian. There's no need to fear death as the Christian. We can look squarely into the eyes of death and it's no longer Something that we need to fear. And that's not because we're just hopefully optimistic. That's because of what Christ has done. Preceding uh, chapter 6, paul we're jumping right in the middle of Paul's uh, logic here and everything that he's unpacking for the church in Rome. But in Romans chapter 5, wonderful beginning to Romans chapter 5, talking about justification through faith, which we talked about last week in Galatians 2. You'll find a lot of similarities, by the way, between Galatians and Romans. He wrote Galatians first, Romans later. It's almost as if Galatians was his workshop to work things out, and he expounded on it more in Romans. Nevertheless, Romans chapter 5, towards the end of the chapter, starting at verse 12 all the way down to the end of the chapter, Paul walks through this whole um, understanding of death in Adam and life in Christ, or that all humanity is in Adam until they are in Christ, And in Adam comes sin and death, destruction, the fall, all kinds of terrible things. In Christ comes the redemption of all those things. that's Paul's points, really, as he walks through. And Spurgeon does a great job, as normally he does, in concluding verses 12 through 21. I contemplated going through it, but I simply don't have the time. So we'll let Spurgeon tell us what... uh, He has to say about this Spurgeon says we as Adam's offspring were heavy losers by the offense of our first father that is Adam the head of our human race we've lost the Garden of Eden and all its delights privileges and immunities. We've lost its communion with God. We've lost its freedom from death. We've lost our first honor and our health. We have become the subjects of pain and weaknesses, suffering and death. This is the effect of the fall. Since we are helpless sinners, salvation must be a free gift. God bestows it on people without regard to any merit. That's what we talked about last week. It's not about our merit. It's about Christ. He, he, he bestows it on people without regard to any merit, supposed or real. Grace has to do with the guilty. Grace by its nature is not a proper gift for the righteous and deserving, but grace is a proper gift for the undeserving and for the sinful. Praise God for grace. Amen. Amen. Paul says at the end of chapter five, the law, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He's talking about sort of the long history of salvation and what God has been doing all throughout creation, and all throughout salvation history. The law came in, God brought in the law to increase the trespass because the law could not bring life. It only exposed how far we were off from God's perfect standard because God's law is wholly righteous, and good because it points us, remember, it's a mirror to reflect to us the righteousness of God. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more and God the Father sent Christ. So that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why Paul says, verse 1, chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why does he say that? He's talking about verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The danger is, we might read chapter 5, verse 20, and think, is that God saying that So is that how God works in my individual life? Sin increases a bunch and then he brings a bunch of grace and it's all grace and that's great. No. Paul's saying you can't. What I'm saying in chapter 5 verse 20, you can't apply to your personal life. That's how I dealt with things across the span of history and time. I brought in the law and sin increased. And then I gave grace by giving my son. I'm not saying that you sin a bunch and then just wait on my grace. That's what he's saying. Paul is dealing with the temptation that some have to apply this concept to their lives. That when sin increases, well, there's grace to catch me. Every justified man or woman is a changed man or woman. If you are justified, if you are declared righteous by the Lord, you are a changed person. The old has passed. The new has come. You're a new creation. Something is different about you. And so that's why there's no category in the Bible to understand, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not acting like it. That simply doesn't exist as a category. We might fool ourselves into thinking that it is because we are experts at justifying everything that we do. But it simply isn't a category to God. There isn't a I'm kind of in, I'm kind of out. If you're justified, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a changed person. doesn't mean you're a perfect person. But you're a changed person. Your life is now headed on a trajectory towards the Lord, towards obedience, towards putting sin to death. You're growing in hatred of your sin and growing in, in, in delight and pleasure in Christ. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means or as Some of your translations say, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The question comes, first of all, let's just dissect this a bit. Who's the we? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, we already know, first of all, the general idea of what Paul's saying. A death to sin means you don't live in it anymore. If you're dead, you're not living anymore, is the basic principle. We can all understand that. But if you're dead to sin, how can you still live in it? Who's the we? You can trace this back, Paul's uh, thoughts about who the we are, all the way back to chapter 4. And as he's talking about justification through faith and he's relating things back to Abraham, I'll just read for you a couple of verses, at, starting at verse 20 in chapter 4, talking about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as Righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul makes the point that, yes, Abraham and, and all that, a historical event that really happened. He really existed and all of this really took place. But that has a benefit for us, for you, for we and then he runs with that, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you just go back and understand who the we are, you understand that the we are the ones who have faith in Jesus Christ. In the same way as Abraham did. You believe in such a way that God, you actually believe that God can do and will do what he promised. Is that the faith and the trust that you have in Christ? Not just a simple, I believe that he exists. But I believe that what he says he will do all the time, every time. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about. Remember, we talked last week about the sometimes the frailty of our faith. God doesn't require us to have a wonderful champion superstar faith, but he does require. Can you at least believe that I'm going to do what I've promised? It's like a child. That's why I talk about. Faith-like a child, when I tell my daughter I'm going to do this, she has really no reason to think that I'm not, because that's sort of my track record. Now we do mess with her a bit once in a while, and when she says she wants dessert after dinner, we have a running joke to talk about we're going to give her broccoli. But um, uh, she generally knows that we're kidding usually, and uh, then she expects dessert. Same way. When God says, I'm going to do this, do you believe that word in such a way that you actually believe that that's what he's going to do? That's faith. We died to sin, he says. How can we who died to sin, how do we die to sin? We died to sin the same way we died to the law. Galatians 2. It happened in and through the death of Christ. We did not make ourselves die to sin. It was not something that we manufactured. Now I'm going to die to sin today. (laughs) No. We die to sin through the death of Christ. And the way that we become participators of the death of Christ, as I've said over and over again, is through our faith and trust in him. We die to sin through faith in Christ. How can we live in it? As crazy as it would be to go back to living to the law, knowing what we know, Remember Peter, what he does, he's, he is one, at, at one time understanding all of the intricacies of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel, I can now sit with Gentiles and eat with Gentile Christians, I'm not going to be tainted by them in some way, I can sit with them, but now these others come back and he's tempted to go back to excluding himself from the, from the Gentiles because some Jews have come around and now he starts living like a Jew again, completely denying what the gospel means for his life. As crazy as that is, it's just as crazy. Why would we go back and live in sin? You ever think about that? It's crazy. I know it seems fun. Otherwise, we wouldn't be tempted to sin. Sin is enjoyable. That's why we want to do it. But that doesn't mean it's good. Right? Things that are enjoyable or that we like is not the standard by which we understand what we are to do or not to do. That's why our our stomachs can be liars to us once in a while, can't it? What we'd like is not necessarily what we should have. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How does baptism connect us to the death of Christ? Jesus, in uh, I'm going to ask you to turn with me back to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10. Jesus refers to baptism in really the same way that Paul is referring to baptism here. Paul does it elsewhere in 1 Corinthians and, as well. But Jesus here in Mark 10 After James and John come to him and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, I'm in verse uh, 38 of Mark 10. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you now? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Then verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, if we just take a minute and pause and think about the storyline, Jesus has long ago been baptized by John the Baptist. There is no pre-crucifixion baptism. He's not talking about a baptism, a tank, right? Outside of the, the cross that he's going to hop into before he gets on the cross. So he must be talking about something else. Jesus said to them, or they said to him, We are able. Verse 39 Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is referring to baptism in such a way that has to do with his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He talks about this, you can look in Luke twelve fifty. It's the same story in Luke's account. Baptism in such a way as, a, as what Paul is describing back in Romans 6. Has to do with a connection with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's why he uses many of the words that he does in both the three verses three and four of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4: We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. We talk about this every time we celebrate a baptism here in this church. We talk about these very verses. And you can almost see the, the picture that's being painted of, of burial and coming to new life. That's what Paul's Using He's connecting everything in and with the death of Christ. And there's something that happens at the point of our conversion, at the point of our faith and trust in Christ, where we suddenly become instantly united to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we don't see some of those effects yet. We're not in our resurrected bodies yet. <laughs> Many of us could say amen to that, right? But there is a promise that it's begun. The work has begun. We are new creations now. Paul says, and the process has begun. We've participated in the death of Christ. It's everything we're talking about in terms of being justified, being declared righteous. Something happens at the point of our salvation, at the point of our conversion, that we become partakers with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul uses this language of baptism to talk about how uh, we are really all consumed into what Christ has done and what Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that becomes then a picture that we paint through baptism itself. So that as you have put your faith in Christ, as you have become a believer in Christ, as you can testify to what Jesus has done, similar to the man that Perkins shared with right before his death. He was a candidate for baptism. Because he had given his life to Christ, he had testified to what the Lord had done in his life, he's ready to be baptized. And as you stand, as we gather here at baptism, we are testifying, you are testifying, that this is what Jesus has done to me. As I have put my faith in him, I have a share now in his death in his burial, and in his resurrection. And I want to testify to that. And the Lord is gracious in giving us this sign of baptism, that we have a visual picture of the gospel. That's what Paul is referring to here. He's not saying that at the moment of baptism, that baptism itself does anything. He's using the language of baptism, much like Jesus does, to point to something more encompassing about what when we are all consumed and taken into Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 12, verse 13. You could look at those if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, and 12. So Paul talks about this sense of uh, participation in Jesus' death. Verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice all of the the prepositions. You remember what those are? In, at, to, for, by? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. If you read your Bible looking for prepositions, you can learn an awful lot about what's being said. Because they're all intentional. Every single with, at, by, to, for, from, uh, or whatever else you'd like to add to that is intentional because every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit and intentional to tell us something about what God is saying. It's not just, well, here's some words. God doesn't speak that way. We're buried, therefore, with him. What a thought. Who can, just think about it. Who can under who can grasp a hold of that? We were buried, therefore, why well, wasn't there? But that's true. There's Something spiritual, something beyond what we can wrap our heads around, this, this mystery that Paul often talks about of our faith, this, this sense of the, the, just the wonder and the majesty of what the Lord does in and through the gospel, that we come up to a point where we can get it, but we go, oh, there's so much more. And if I wanted to keep going, it just gets deeper and deeper a stupid illustration, but um, I've always loved cereal, and uh, my grandparents, you know, God love you, grandparents, you don't usually have fun cereals at your house. You know, you don't usually have Cookie Crisp or Captain Crunch, you know, you got Mueslix or uh, All-Bran or uh, Grape Nuts. (laughs) My my grandpa always loved uh, Grape Nuts. And I remember wanting cereal there oftentimes when I'd spend the night over the weekends and stuff. And grape nuts are these interesting things where you you get the bowl of grape nuts and really all you see is milk. And there's just a little bit of crowning of a little bit of grape nuts. And, you know, I I was like, okay, I'll eat these fine. I asked for cereal. This is what I get. And you just keep going in there and you keep bringing out more spoonfuls of grape nuts. And like, where do they come from? You keep going down. They just keep coming out. But that's what the gospel's like. You can just get a couple spoonfuls out and you're okay. And it looks like you've got it. But if you keep digging in there, there's so much more to bring out. And it's way better than grape nuts. (laughs) Thankfully. That was dumb, wasn't it? That's where my mind goes, though. Baptism is this means by which we are, uh, Paul means to say that we are uh, accompanied with the Lord in his death, burial, and resurrection. You may have heard of Augustine, often called one of the church fathers. He was a bishop of Hippo. To my knowledge, there weren't any hippos there, uh, but he was there in North Africa, and he was baptized on April 24th, uh, April 24th, the year 387. And he recounts his baptism along with his, one of his good friends at the time. And he says this, and in this he's, he's talking to the Lord as he's recounting this story. He says, we were baptized and disquiet about our past life or concerns about our past life vanished from us. During those days, I found an insatiable and amazing delight in considering the profundity of your purpose, talking to God, and considering how profound the purpose, your purpose was for the salvation of the human race. How I wept during your hymns and songs. I was deeply moved by the music of the sweet chants of your church. That sounds flowed into my ears and the truth was distilled into my heart. This caused the feelings of devotion to overflow. Tears ran, and it was good for me to have that experience. Augustine recounts something that after he'd put his faith in Christ, after he was converted, he was baptized with his friend. And he's saying that all that season of his life, he said he found an insatiable and amazing delight in considering the gospel as he thought more and more about it, as he sung about it, as he spent time in and with his peop- uh, God's people in the church, he just felt this, this overflow of, I, I want to dig deeper in this. I want to understand more about this. This is so wonderful. This is so profound. This is so good. And that's how he, I love how he explains it. Have you experienced that? Did you have a season, perhaps after your faith in Christ, where you just Wanted to keep eating it up. Digging deeper. Understanding more about your Lord who has saved you graciously. Are you still that way? It's not just a season, is it? Sometimes we have to fight for that. Sometimes we we don't feel like it. But we want to keep digging in. I want to know more, Lord, about your love for me. I want to know more about what you've done. I want to know more about you. Because I want to grow more to be like you. I want to become more like you. I want to love you more. I want to hate my sin more. I want, to be, I want this to be true for me, ongoing, every day in my life. I want to stand before you in glory. I want to be free from sin and death and weakness and sorrow. Is that true for you? Do you have that hunger that you keep? I, I want more, Lord. This is not some kind of spiritual feeling that you find out about watching Oprah. It's about digging into God's word and understanding more and more about your Lord who loves you so much. Do you want that? Do you desire that? This is where you find it. There's no other place. You won't find it in your flower garden. You won't find it on a walk. You'll find it in his word. You might think about those things while you're in your flower garden or on a walk or wherever else, but it's because you're thinking about him in his word. That's where you know and grow. It says he was raised, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. In Romans 8 verse 11 he says that Jesus was raised by the Spirit from the dead. It tells us a little bit something about what we can think about the Spirit, the glory of the Father. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. In Romans 8:11 he says, "The same spirit resides in you that raises Jesus from the dead. That same glory of the Father shone on all of your hearts if you're in Christ this morning, and has done a work of newness in you. It's not complete yet. You have not seen the resurrection yet, but there's something about the resurrected life that's sort of begun in you and will be completed on the day that the Lord is appointed we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus walked in newness of life after he was raised from the dead. And so he says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus was dead and then he was alive. And he's saying, Paul's saying, you need to live and walk in the same way in your Christian life. You died and now you live. You live this new life. There's something new that's happened in you. Live that way. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And I don't have time to go there, but in Colossians 2, verse 12, and Ephesians 2, verse 6, Paul talks about the fact that we were raised with Christ, that the resurrection has begun, in a sense, in us already. But yet, what's he say here in verse 5? We shall be certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, resurrection hasn't happened yet for us. It has for Christ. He's the first fruits. It's begun. We can look to him and understand a little bit more about what our resurrection life will be like. But the resurrection life in us has begun to some degree, as Paul says, in Colossians 2 and Ephesians 2. It's started. It's happening. That's how the kingdom has already begun. But it's not yet. Same thing happens for us individually. We've been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is assurance. That is where our hope comes from. If I am in Christ now, I'm going to be in Christ then. That's the hope that propels us, that holds on to us. But we live in this tension, don't we? Because, gosh, it would be great if it was just done now. The experience of a believer in Jesus involves, first, having become righteous by God's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord, yet also awaiting the hope of righteousness, Galatians 5.5. 5. The experience of a believer in Jesus involves having been raised to the new resurrection life, yet also awaiting being united with him in his resurrection, the verse we just read, Romans 6.5. The experience of a believer in Jesus involves having been crucified with Christ and so freed from sin, yet also needing to be urged, as we'll see here soon enough, we need to be urged to no longer be slaves to sin. So we're freed from sin, but we need to be told not to be slaves anymore. We're, we're raised with Christ, but we're not yet fully raised with Christ. We have died with Christ and been set free from sin, but we still feel it gripping us. We live in this tension. There's an overlapping of the age to come and this present evil age that we live in. And we feel it even in our own bodies. But yet, Paul tells us, Philippians 1.16, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is the hope that holds on to each of us as we get frustrated, perhaps, by the tension in which we live. I have died with Christ, but yet I still feel like maybe I haven't. Or there's something still holding on to me or still present in my life. What do I do with that? This hope of, son or daughter, I have you in the midst of this overlap of time. Keep your eyes on this. I began a good work in you, and I will finish it. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Trying to understand who our old self was. Who was our old self? Or this body of sin. Best way to understand it is, uh, before we knew Christ, the person that we were, the person that you and I were, was completely dominated by sin. Everything that we did, everything that we thought, everything that we felt, sin. Our motives, even if we did something good, our motives were sinful. Even if we said something good, our motives perhaps were sinful. Our hearts, we were just fully living in a sense that we were, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Our minds are are, are completely off. As Paul says earlier in Romans, we're basically insane apart from Christ. That's the old self. That's the body of sin. That's this, this existence that we had being completely dominated and controlled by sin. You know what that feels like. You remember that? You know it a lot better now, don't you, if you're in Christ. You didn't know it before. You're like the frog in the pot, right? Waiting for it to boil. You had no idea. But now you know. You look back and you think, gosh, I was so deep in that. We know that our old self was crucified with him. We, we continue to fight, though, with our old self, don't we? Paul tells us elsewhere to put on our new selves. But our opponent that wants to creep back into our lives is dead. The person that we're fighting with, the old self, he's dead. So, how much of an opponent can he really be? He's dead. Our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This body of sin that was so mighty and so dominated by sin and so powerful, he's been brought to what? Nothing. Now this is not just nice words to charge us up. This is true. so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, we're freed from the penalty of sin to the death of Christ, but we're also freed from the power of sin. You were enslaved. You didn't just, you know, some of your translations say you served sin. The word is literally slavery. You were enslaved to sin. And when you're a slave, you do everything your master tells you, and you have no choice to do otherwise. Right? Right? That's what you serve. Even if you want to use the serve terminology. That's what you do. You serve your master. You do what he tells you. You don't go against him. You can't escape on your own power. Someone had to pull you out of that. And that's exactly what Christ did. You're no longer enslaved to sin. If you're in Christ this morning. For one who has died, verse 7, has been set free from sin. Death. This is the only way out. And talking, I talked last week a little bit about our culture's obsession with death. Both we're terrified of it, so we do all kinds of things to try to avoid it—diets and everything else that we do. But you're still going to die. By the way, no matter how much high fructose corn syrup you either eat or do not eat, or GMOs or BPA, you're going to die. Sorry. But we're also very obsessed with death in that some have been lulled into thinking about um, maybe death is the answer to release myself from these issues. Maybe I can control this. Maybe people should be allowed when they get to a certain point to just take care of it themselves. What we find elsewhere the Lord, the Lord is in charge of death, not us. So that means two things. That means we can't control it or stop it. And that also means we can't control it and do it when we want. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That death, that only, the death of Christ, that is the only way out. It's not dying to self. It's being crucified with Christ. Christ. We've been set free from our slave master, sin. Since I've died, you're not my master anymore. I'm dead. You, you don't rule me anymore. And, and see how Paul sort of personifies or makes sin almost like he's, it's this thing. To be sure, we do commit sins, but sin has also wrecked all of creation, entered the world through Adam's sin dominates us. You need only to be a new parent for a little while to understand original sin. You don't have to teach them to say no or to talk back or to be mean or to steal or to... You don't have to teach them any of that. <laughs> they just do it. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Paul's restating a bit of what he said in verse 5. But he says, we will also live with him. That's now, and that's on through into eternity. Your life, Paul says in Colossians 3, you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life now and in the future. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion on him. Or over him. Since Christ is risen, he will never die again. He no longer, death no longer has dominion over him. Now, the word literally there for dominion is lordship. Death no longer has is, is the Lord over Christ. And if we're in Christ, what do you think that means for us? Death is, null, it, death is the last enemy that we deal with. But he, uh, he's not our Lord anymore. The saving change a believer experiences is as irreversible and unrepeatable as the death and resurrection of Christ. If you could pull yourself out of being united with Christ in his death, then you would. But you can't. You're united with him. You can't become ununited with him. You can break your communion with him through sin, through disobedience for a time. But you can't sever that union with him. If you're united with him in, through faith, you're with him. He says, right? If you're in my hand, you're not getting out. What a wonderful truth that is. And that's not based on us, that's because it's his hand. You're not leaving it. And so, Christ's death, it's done. And your death, spiritually, eternally, it's done. Physically, yes, we're all going to die unless the Lord comes. But we need not to look at death in a way that we used to. Jesus says several different times to people. Mark 9, he says, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Luke nine twenty-seven. but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. John eight fifty one. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This seeing death, this tasting death, there's a promise there hidden for the believer that how you and I experience death will not be like those who are not in Christ. If you've ever been with someone who's died knowing Christ, there's just something different about the way that they approach that. There's a hope, there's a peace that you can't even really describe. And if you've seen the other side of it, you know it all the more. You know, someone perhaps that has died without Christ. There's such a, perhaps a hopelessness, a darkness, that a believer can face death and know that on the other end of that last breath is the face of Christ. Verse ten: For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus, and, uh, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians five twenty-one, he became sin. He did that once for all. He died for you, for your sin. You're included there in that all, once for all. He died once doesn't need to be repeated. It's happened one time. The life he lives, he lives to God. Therefore, if you are in him, through faith, through trust, your life should be living, lived in the same way, living to God. Because God has you now. You're his son or daughter through faith in Christ. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I struggle with this verse. I'll tell you why. You can read it and think, what do you mean, Paul? You also must consider yourselves dead to sin or reckon yourselves, if you'd like. Does that mean that I am, I am saying that I just need to have this frame of mind that will help me? Does that make it any less true that I'm actually dead to sin? Am I just supposed to think that I am? Is that where the power's at? Just being honest. Do you ever do this as you read through the word? You're just trying to understand, well, what do you mean by that, Lord? What, What does this mean? Consider yourselves. Back in Romans 4 and at verse 3, Paul is talking about Abraham, as we already heard, and his justification by faith. I'm going to start at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember last week I talked about justification, really, we should understand it as being declared righteous. God doesn't make us righteous. He doesn't create righteousness in us. He declares us righteous. We're sinners. We're not righteous, but he declares us righteous through faith in Christ. Same thing for Abraham. He believed God, and it was counted to him. Think about it. Credited to his account. Counted to him as righteousness. And if you just scan through chapter 4 and look for every time you see the word counted, it's all over the place. Chapter 5 as well. Well, back in our text in chapter 6, so you almost also must consider yourselves. That's the same Greek word. You could say count yourselves. What this is saying is, what Paul is saying is not just, just pretend in your mind that you're dead to sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to count yourself the same way God counts you through Christ. Because God counts you righteous through faith in Christ, you need to consider yourself in the same way. We might say it otherwise it only matters what God thinks about us, or we should think of ourselves the way God thinks about us. That's what Paul's saying here. That's really where that comes from. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin. This isn't about, let me just think really hard and think positively that I'm dead to sin. No, this is, God considers you dead to sin because of your faith and trust in Christ. He counts you righteous. He declares you righteous. He says that you're dead to sin in Christ. Therefore, think about yourself in the same way because that's what's true, right? What God says about us is far more important than even what we think about ourselves. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is not just about think really hard and try to think positively about yourself in this way or make it happen or fake it till you make it. This is what God says about you if you have your faith in Christ. You're dead to sin and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. But then, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Well, you just said, Paul, that I'm supposed to consider myself dead to sin. Why are you telling me now, don't let sin reign? If I'm dead to sin, why would I do that? Paul Paul would say, exactly. But the command is still there because we live in this tension, don't we? As I talked about, we live feeling the power of sin still lolling us. We still feel tempted to run back to our old slave master, sin. He says, let not sin therefore reign. It's kingly language. Sin is not your king. Jesus is. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Because if you allow it to reign, you will listen to everything that it says. But it's, it doesn't rule you anymore, so you don't have to listen to it anymore. It's a wonderful thing. Do you know that, Christians, you don't have to sin? As you feel tempted... You don't have to feel like, well, I guess I have to give into this now because this is so powerful I can't fight it. No, you don't have to. I know we know God will give a way of escape, right? But just that's the way of escape. You don't have to. He's not your master anymore. You don't have to tell me what to do. Paul says, I beat my body into submission. My stomach is not in charge. Food is for my stomach. I control my body. And that's not just about food. I'm in control of this. Because I've been set free from my former master and slave owner, sin. Christ is my king. Christ is my Lord, not sin. He goes on. Do not present, verse 13, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. This is not just about Paul gets down to the nitty gritty. Your members means your members. All of your body. This is not just how you think about yourself. This is not just sin in your mind. This is everything that you do. And everything that you do with every part of you. Do not present your members to sin. As instruments for unrighteousness. You present your members. Or you present things to someone as you want to serve it. You want to. um, uh, I'm I'm underneath you. So here. Here. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. Or weapons for righteousness. Because that's exactly what our bodies are. To the devil, to sin. He wants nothing more. Sin wants nothing more than to destroy us. And if he can do that with us... That's even more great. I'm going to destroy him and allow him to destroy himself through sin. But if I can use myself and my members as weapons for righteousness, then I can follow the Lord and everything that I do can be unto the Lord and I can work and fight for righteousness. These are all active things, right? There's a command here. Do that. Let not sin reign. Present your members. This is not just let me sit back. Lord, make me sanctified. It doesn't work that way. He is making you sanctified, but the way he does it is through the means of you obeying and let not, letting not sin for sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies and presenting your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, Since you are not under law but under grace, sin will have no lordship over you. Just as death has no lordship over Christ, sin will have no lordship over you. Neither will death because you are in Christ. And so all that Paul says in his commands even are all cased in these promises. Because if we just try to follow commands, we're just going back to the law. I just need to live and avoid sin. That won't get it. If you're starting to feel a little bit of conviction in your life, feeling like, boy, I'm living, I'm living completely disconnected from the Lord. I'm, I know I'm in sin. I know that the things that I'm doing are wrong. The ways that I'm thinking are wrong. The path for you is not to just try to stop sinning because you can't. The path for you is to put your faith in Christ. And he will free you from the penalty of your sin. And he will give you the power to then begin to obey him and to put your sin to death every single day, that every day you wake up and you feel, oh, I'm living this life in the flesh. Sin's still there. There's temptation to gripe, to grumble, to do whatever else, but I'm going to rest in the power of Christ through his deliverance, through his death, through his resurrection. I'm going to live in that power today. I'm not going to let sin reign in my mortal body because I need to consider myself dead to sin. I need to count myself dead to sin because God does, in Christ and sin's not going to have any dominion over me because it's not my Lord, it's not my king. Jesus Christ is my king and him alone, and I'm going to live to please him and to serve him with all of my being. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. This is how we do that. Love the Lord with our minds and our thinking, but also not just in avoiding things, but in positively pursuing Him. Sometimes we can get so caught up in thinking that my Christian life is just about I, I need to I need to be careful that I don't do anything wrong. It should be more about yes, okay, don't let sin reign, Amen. But pursue Christ. Grow in Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You're not under law, but under grace. And we could run right back to verse 1, couldn't we? You hear grace and you go, oh, grace, yeah, I love grace. Ah, are we to continue in the sin that grace may abound? Nope. So our limits are always there for us. When we we get all excited about grace, I love grace. Grace is so good. And we should love grace because grace is wonderful. But it should not be a license for our sin. Sin will have no dominion over you. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 2? Christ is not the servant of sin. He didn't justify you so you would sin. Justified you so you would live for him. Live to God. Going back to Perkins, William Perkins, he once drank deeply of sin, excelling in drunkenness. But after meeting Christ, one author said of him that he drank Cambridge's library dry. He had a new thirst for God, for the Bible, and to learn about his Savior and Lord. That's what our lives should be about. We once drunk deeply of the world and everything that it would give us. But we know that that leaves us empty and leaves us miserable. I read a little snippet from a pastor that you would know if I mentioned him. I'm not going to. But he talked about, he basically said that the consequences of our sin is far more punishment than actually what the Lord wants to punish the sin. That is categorically wrong. The consequences of our sin is punishment. Some of you know that, don't you? You've sinned and you live with the burden of those consequences. But I'm telling you, as bad as that is, it is nothing near how much the Lord hates sin. not about how the Lord hates you. Jesus was not like the the good cop that came in between you and the Father. It says, for God so loved the world. That's the Father that he gave his only son. The Father loves you. How do you know that? He gave his son. Perkins understood that. And he stopped drinking deeply of sin and he started drinking deeply of Christ. A danger for us is to ignore or deny the power of sin. Wherever you're at this morning, you don't know the Lord, or you're not really even sure why you drove through the snow to come here this morning. The problem for you, perhaps, is you don't yet understand the ugliness and the offense of sin. You just think that the Christian life is all about a bunch of people being really judgmental and trying to pretend like we're good, and we're not. That's not what it's about. It's about the fact that Christ is our Savior, and we're terrible. We're sinners. We have received so much mercy, so much grace, and He's changed us. He's done what we read and heard about Perkins, and He can do that for you. That you need to understand God is not pleased with sin. But he loves you very much. And he wants to change you. What Jesus offers through faith in him is a deliverance from slavery to sin. You might be in a place where you are starting to feel conviction. Maybe you've even professed faith at some point. But you're not really sure it's taken hold. You're not really sure it's true. You're not really sure you understand even what you professed. But you certainly feel that you are in slavery It's your sin. You feel its power. You feel that there's nothing you can do to get out from under it. And you're right. There's nothing that you can do to get out from under it. But Jesus has done it for you and he offers to you, come to me. Stop drinking in that. Stop going to these things to try to fill yourself, fulfill yourself through these things. Come to me. Set all that aside. Come to me. Many of us who are Christians and have been perhaps for some time and far longer than I have, you can forget the power of sin. You can ignore it. You can think that you've gone long enough and you're fine and there's grace. We need not play with sin. Newer Christians, those of you who have recently come to the Lord, You're trying to figure out the Christian life. You're trying to understand how you see yourself as God does. You're trying to wrestle with getting rid of sin in your life. You need to look at yourself the way the Lord looks at you. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is how God sees you. You've been saved from the penalty of sin, yes, but you've been saved from the power of sin. You do not need to sin anymore. Peter says, you spent enough time in that. First Peter. Spent enough time living in sin. That's enough. And some of you just need to stop serving what you've been freed from. You want to run back to your old master? Perhaps you're missing. You know, I I, I missed that before I became a Christian. I, I didn't get to indulge in that enough. I'd like to keep going in that. I'd like to run back to this because it's comfortable, or this is my functional savior, whatever it is. You need to understand what you've been freed from. The Lord has freed you from sin. So live like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true always. I pray you take everything that's true that we've heard today and apply it to our hearts. Lord, I pray that this morning someone would hear your offer, your call to them and respond. That they would stop trying to figure out their sin and manage their sin on their own and recognize that you have paid the penalty for it. You want them to come to you in faith and humility and just trust. And you're going to take it from there with them, Lord. You're going to call them to obedience, yes. You're going to call them to living with them, but they need to settle things with you right now, perhaps. Lord, I pray that they would take that step of just trust and faith in you. Those of us, Lord, who know you, May we be reminded that we need to consider ourselves the way you consider us in Christ. God, thank you for mercy and grace. May your hand be on us as we continue today and go out into the world this week. May we be ready to, like Perkins, tell others about what he's done and walk with others through difficult seasons and pointing them to Christ because, oh God, you've done such wonderful things in us. You've shown us so much grace. You've blessed us so abundantly. How can we not share that? Lord, thank you for loving us first, loving us best, and loving us so faithfully. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.